Um, I'm excited to have Dr. David Seals with us here today as our guest preacher. Uh, Dr. Seals has been as much of an influencer on my life as anybody. My life and my faith uh, and, and the ministry of which God has given me. Um, he is one of my biggest mentors as far as gospel ministry goes. He has allowed me to have his cell phone number and call him uh, whenever I need help here with what God is doing. And so it's an honor for, him, uh, for us to have him here with us. Uh, a little bit about him. He is from Mississippi. Um, and he was called into the ministry a little bit later in life. And he was a missionary in Ecuador for about 10 years. And then he came back here and has been in the ministry ever since. He is now a uh, professor at Southern Seminary. He's also the president of Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, which is a missions agency that sends both career missionaries and short-term missionaries. And really uh, now just spends his entire life trying to promote the cause of getting the gospel of Jesus to the world. I think that's a good, simple way to say it. He's here today with his wife, Mary, who is, who is such a blessing, and a good friend, Chris, who is also a missionary, but a missionary in Haiti. Um, and Dr. Seals has been a friend and a mentor to me for quite a while, and I wanted to tell you all this. He's the first person that ever took me to Ecuador before I got married, before I had asked Valeria to marry me. In 2004, he took me to Ecuador, and so I, I love to... I'd love to remember that and to tell our children that, that I have an Ecuadorian wife now, and in so many ways it was Dr. Seals' influence who, who helped bring me to that point. Um, it, it's an honor for, for him to be here with us. Dr. Seals, thank you for being here. Would you please come up and preach? Thank you for the opportunity to be here and to be able to share a little bit from God's Word. It is, uh, it's always a joy to see Josh and Valeria again and their growing family. And it sounds like there's a lot of that going around. So it's congratulations to many of you. Our two are grown now and having their own. We have a son and his wife and three of our grandkids in Ecuador as missionaries with us. And then our daughter and her husband and one of our granddaughters are in Nashville and each of them is expecting one more each this year so we are growing as well. God is good and God cares about his people and he has allowed us to be a part of what he's doing around the world. God is pleased when we get involved with his people around the world and when we get involved in missions because it's his mission after all and he has called us to be a part of it. All of us have some role to play in what I call the missionary enterprise. When you think about the needs that exist around the world, I could go on and on all day today, but I won't. I'll, I'll just say briefly to let you know there's a lot to be done in this world. It's a gospel hostile world. You read the newspaper, you look at the online news, and you know that there are a lot of people who don't want the gospel anywhere around them. and They don't want you to grow in your faith. And so we need people who do understand the scriptures in place to train up others. Right now, as we look around the world, here in the U.S., we have one trained Christian worker. And if you've gone to Sunday school all your life, listened to Billy Graham, uh, gone to, to vacation Bible school, or maybe been to Boyce or seminary or, or anything like that, if you are at that level, we would call you a trained Christian worker. There is one trained Christian worker actually vocational person in the United States for every 235 people. 
But around the world, there's only one trained Christian worker for every 450,000 people. So many people around the world not only don't have access to the Word, they don't have anyone who can teach them, who can train them. In fact, a third of our world today has never heard the gospel message, never even heard Jesus' name. That's over two billion people. And they live in over half of the world's people groups, people with their own language and background and, and history. And the truth is, every person in this room is to be involved in the international missions work. Everybody. Now, I'm not saying you have to sell the farm and go. We just read a very pertinent passage. Paul said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he said, picking up with the passage we read, but how can they call on someone they've not believed in? And how can they believe unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Everyone in this room has a role to play. You're either a goer or you are a sender. The bigger question, and the question I'd like for us to consider today, is when God does call to whichever role He has for you, how will you respond? Every one of us will receive some sort of, of, of an impulse from God drawing us to one direction or the other. When He calls you, how will you answer? Now, I want us to consider what that might look like in your life. But again, the, the foundation of our considerations today is your knee-jerk response. When God calls your name and makes it very plain to you what you are to do, how will you respond? You remember Jonah, he chose poorly. And God still had his way in Jonah's life and in the life of the people who live in Nineveh, but Jonah chose poorly. And when we choose poorly, sometimes those around us suffer. Sometimes we don't receive the blessing that we would otherwise receive, and those closest to us do not either. I want us to consider a very unlikely passage for a missionary message, and it's the story of Moses' missionary call that you see in your bulletin. But if we look back over our shoulders all the way back to Exodus 3, there is a, a story of this man named Moses that was called by God to go and do the work that he had for him to do. Now, I don't have time to preach all of Exodus 3 all the way up to the 10th or 12th verse. I think we go through in chapter 4, but you know the story well, so I'm going to pick out a few verses, and we will just look at those in the couple of hours that we have. No, I know we don't have a couple hours. But in time we do have, I want to drill down on those points that will let us just see what does it look like when God calls a person to leave their life and to do something totally different. And we'll use him as an example. Now remember, as you're looking for Exodus 3 in your Bible, just remember, I think it's pages 50, 51 in the, in the Pew Bibles, but as you look there, remember the story. This is a time of Israel's existence in their history when they were captives, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh was getting nervous because the people of Israel were getting so so populous, so numerous, that he said, they're going to have too much control. In fact, if they began to rebel, they might have the upper hand. So we need to control the population growth. And they decided to do that by killing all of the boy babies, throwing them into the Nile River. Well, Moses' parents did not want to do that with him very obviously. So they decided they would preserve his life 
And his mom put him in this little basket, put him in the Nile River, and you know the story how Pharaoh's daughter is down at the river. She sees this basket. They fish it out, and lo and behold, this is a little baby, little Hebrew baby. But she adopts this baby and raises him in the court of Pharaoh. So young Moses grows up just like any other Egyptian boy. He has Egyptian values. He has Egyptian worldview. He has the Egyptian culture. And he identifies with the Egyptian people until he gets to be an adult. And then one day he sees this Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he comes to the Hebrew's aid to rescue him and in the process kills this Egyptian. Well, he had to take off. He had to go like a fugitive from justice and he's living as a murderer, living as a fugitive from justice out in the wilderness and this is pretty much where we pick up the story. The Bible says that he's out in the wilderness keeping these sheep and goats of his father-in-law. Now one African lady, when she heard that story being told, she said, whoa, wait a minute, why, why is he doing that? And we said, well, this was his living. This is how he earned his livelihood was taking care of the and, sheep and goats. He was a shepherd. She said, no, why is he taking care of the sheep and the goats of his father-in-law? And she said, what a shameful thing that this man is now, at this point in the story, about 80 years old, and he still doesn't have his own flock of animals. What an embarrassing thing this would be for Moses. But it's worse than that. Because remember I said he grew up in the court of Pharaoh. He would have had an Egyptian mindset or worldview or preferences or values. And for what he was doing, he was very much like the prodigal son taking care of pigs which was terrible for Jewish, Jewish people to even think about. That's what he was doing for a living. That's kind of what Moses was doing. And why do I say that? You remember when Joseph's brothers were reunited with him and he brought his family, his dad and his brothers, to Egypt to live, to wait out the famine? And he said, now when I present you to Pharaoh, make sure that you tell him, we, your servants, are shepherds. And then the Bible says, because shepherds and shepherding were abhorrent to the Egyptians. They looked down on that as the lowest position. Nobody would do that. Nobody with any self-respect would do that kind of job. And that's what we find Moses, this young man who grew up as the prince of Egypt in the court of Pharaoh. Now he's an 80-year-old man caring for sheep and goats in the wilderness and not even his own, those of his father-in-law. Well, in Genesis 3, Beginning in, we'll just beginning in, begin in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now surely as an 80-year-old man, Moses had seen a bush on fire before. But he had never seen one on fire that did not burn up. It kind of caught his attention. It was some unexpected sight. So Moses draws near to see what this thing is all about. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And before we get started, I want to ask you a question, and I want to ask a couple more along the way. But one question I want to ask is, what unexpected source might God use in your life to speak to you and to give you His direction for your life? What might that be? And what I would submit to you is that God oftentimes uses unexpected sources. Moses had no idea that God would speak to him out of this bush that was on fire. And another question to keep in mind is, has your approach this morning maybe become too much of a habit, too casual? And the reason I ask that is because I think we oftentimes forget what happens here. Jesus said, if two or more gathered in my name, I am there. He is in this room right now. I think if we could get really quiet and genuinely entered into prayer seeking His face, we might even hear the sound of sandal footsteps in this room. He is here. And this book does not contain God's Word. This is God's Word. Our hands should tremble a little bit when we handle this. This is what He has revealed to us that He wants us to know. And so as we come this morning to consider, might He use this crazy professor from Southern Seminary to speak to me today? Maybe it was your Sunday school lesson. Or maybe the devotional you did at home. The prayer time at lunch today. I don't know, but what, would, what might He use to speak to you? And might we figuratively need to re remove the sandals from our feet, our hearts, as we begin entering in this time of worship right now, listening to the Word of God, Lord, what would you say to me? And we remember this is holy ground. He, he is here with us. So what did he say to Moses? Well, he told Moses that he has seen the great need in the world today. He has seen the great need. He says in verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Notice who is the actor in this passage. God didn't come down and say, Moses, I want you to go be the hero. Although the Jewish people tried to turn him into one, God said, I have heard, I have seen, I have come down. I will deliver them. Yes, he had called Moses to be his spokesperson, but God is the one who does the saving. He has heard the needs of the world today. The third of this world's population that has never heard the gospel. Out of that number, every single day, about 50,000 people die and go into a Christless eternity. That means yesterday, before we went to sleep, about 50,000 people stepped from this life into eternal life, separated from Christ, and they will be for all eternity. That will happen again today. It will happen again tomorrow. It will happen again the day after that until we say, here I am, Lord. 
and we take the good news to people who have never heard it. In actual fact, the greater tragedy of the world is not that it is unreached, because we often have some very strange ways of what we count to be reached. The greater tragedy of the world is that it is undiscipled. There are a number of people around our world who've raised their hand at a gospel invitation because they thought they were supposed to, or for whatever reason, but they don't know who Jesus is, or that they're sinners, or how to walk with God daily. And we need people who will go and pour their lives into these people groups and to teach them what they need to know. People are living in fear to Islam. They're living in fear of Zoroastrianism, of Satanism. People living in fear of the curses of the ancestors and the powers of the witch doctors all over this world. All over this world. You will never find a people group that does not already have a religion. They all worship something. Our brother Chris is from Haiti, and he could tell you story after story of the people that are trapped in voodoo, fear of the spirits, fear of zombies, fear of all kinds of things that we don't even think about on a daily basis. And even in churches, people continue to struggle with these fears. I wonder if God were here today, if He might say something like, I have surely seen the affliction of 2,000 millions of lost people who have never heard my name. I know their sufferings, and I know their harsh taskmaster, Satan. I know their sufferings to come, and I have come to deliver them out of the hand of demons and to bring them up out of that darkness and bondage to reconciliation and peace with me, to salvation and eternal life. What I'm saying is that God may be calling some of you in this room right now, but remember, just as in Moses' case, God is the one who saves. That's not put on you. What is your job? Your job is simply to tell the good news. Your job is to be the spokesperson, the ambassador, just as Moses was called by God to go to Egypt. But now remember, Moses is 80 years old. He must have a very low self-esteem by now for the, what he's having to do for a living. And Moses is wanted for a murder. He's wanted for murder back in Egypt. And those who are seeking his very life are the ones that God is calling Moses to go and take away their workforce, their greatest treasure. And Moses surely reasoned, this is impossible. I can't do this. But that's true. But God can. God is able to save. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. God says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. God knows their heart. Yes, he knows it's difficult. But he also knows what he's going to do. And after he does that, he knows what they're going to do. God doesn't just know the future. He even knows the potential future. If, Lord, if I do this, will this happen? God can tell you exactly what would happen if you do that. You remember David when he was in Ziklag and Saul was coming after him with his army? And, God, and David said, Lord, if I stay here in the city, will they turn me over? And God said they will. And David did not stay. God doesn't just know what is going to happen tomorrow. He does know that. But he also knows all of the potential futures for choices that people could make. And he knows the hardness of their hearts. He knows the hard places in the world today. And every day he is still calling men and women, boys and girls, to respond to his call and say, yes, here I am, Lord. Send me. 
in Somalia. The average life expectancy of a new believer is 45 days. There is so much honor killing and martyrdom. And when people pray to receive Christ, they know that they have drastically reduced their life expectancy. And most of them will not live beyond a month and a half, two months. They know that. And yet they say, Christ is worth it. Now, some people say to me from time to time, I've written a book called The Missionary Call, some other missions kinds of books. People will come and talk to me about that, and they'll say, I've been struggling with my call. I've been looking into the lives of missionary heroes, and I read their biographies, but you know, brother, you know, I've, I've made some choices in my life that would keep God from being able to use me like that. I wish I could be like that, but... I think I, I zigged when I should have zagged one time and I made some bad choices and well, this is my life. There was a young man, he's really one of my heroes, but he was uh, called to the ministry back in a time of our country when you had to go to seminary and graduate to be ordained. And you had to be ordained to serve as a minister. And he knew God had called him to be a minister. So he goes to seminary. Well, this seminary had gone very liberal. It had gone way off to the left. In fact, some of the professors weren't even Christians. They were just getting a job. And this young man, standing in the hallway, talking to a friend of his, they were talking about some particular professor, and he just happened to say, you know, that professor, he said, well, he doesn't have any more grace than that chair. Well, that word got back to that professor. The professor was indignant, and he kicked this young man out of school. He was expelled. Oh, he went and apologized. He said, I'm so sorry. That was a private conversation. I, I didn't mean for that to get public or get back to you, but I apologize. I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. Please forgive me and let me back in class. The guy said, no way. You're out. So he appealed to the president of the institution. He said, sorry. He appealed to the whole faculty. In fact, he made a public apology for what had been a private remark. And other theologians and pastors and church leaders around his part of the country, which was New England, appealed on his behalf, and he still didn't get back in. His life being in God's service was over. There was nothing else he could do. He wanted to be this great preacher for God's sake, and yet because of a silly remark that he made, he had ruined God being able to use him. So he took his Bible... And he went out in the woods and he began to just preach to the Indians. And he kept a journal, a little diary. He wrote in it every day. It was a very rugged life. It was New England. It was a lot of cold, a lot of snow. And this young man was sick. He had tuberculosis and the symptoms of that were made worse by the harsh conditions where he lived. And he died early, 29 years old. But he left behind that diary. That diary was taken and published by the great theologian Jonathan Edwards. And to this day, The Life and Diary of David Brainerd is a powerful book that we still use in seminary today. William Carey, the father of modern missions, the Baptist pastor who sailed from England to India in 1792, when he went, he took his Bible, and one of the books he took was The Life and Diary of David Brainerd because it had so impacted his life and God had used it to call him into missions, and he took it with him to India. David Brainerd has impacted countless generations after his terrible sin, 
but not in the way he ever would have expected. So many people say, but you don't know what I've done. And what I need to say is, I don't care what you've done. I don't need to know what you've done. I know what he's done, and he has made it possible for everyone that surrenders to him to be used, maybe not in the way you would expect, but in a way that he has planned. Is there some sin or action in your past, choice you've made, that up until this morning you have allowed to excuse you from greater service, greater commitment to serve the Lord? I think we need to rethink that. And remember, it's not up to us. It is up to Him. And God can use the least resource. We say, I don't have a lot to bring. He can use the least resource. Verse 11 of chapter 3, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. I would too. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff again in his hand. Now, someone has said, we see the great faith of Moses here, because, you know, when you catch a snake by the tail, the business end is still loose, right? So he grabbed that snake upon God's command, and God showed him that he could take a stick and use it. And we know that God used that staff to bring the nation of Israel out of captivity, a plain old stick. Now, now, I mean, it was obviously blessed by God, but at the end of the day, what you got here is a stick. It was just a stick. Somebody wrote about this, said, a, a shepherd's staff was commonly a three to six foot wooden rod with a curved hook at the top. The stick was used for walking, for guiding sheep, for killing snakes, and many other tasks. Still, it was just a stick. But God used the simple shepherd's staff Moses carried as a sign to teach him an important lesson. And I would add, to teach us one as well. God sometimes takes joy in using ordinary things for extraordinary purposes. While it's easy to assume that God could use special skills, you must not hinder His use of the everyday contributions that you could make. So here's the question. What is that in your hand? What do you have? Is it a computer? Is it a car? Is it a broom? Is it the ability to write letters? Is it a musical instrument? Is it the ability to cook meals for people? What is it in your hand that you think is just an ordinary thing that God might use to bring glory to His name, that God might use to advance the kingdom among those who desperately need to hear the truth. We all need to think about the Great Commission. Jesus' last command should be our first priority. Jesus came near and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. His last command. J. Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission, said the Great Commission is not an option for you to consider. It is a commandment to obey. Every one of us need to interact with the Great Commission in some way. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes, I have his little portrait hanging in my office. Spurgeon said, 
Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, he didn't mean you had to sell the farm and go to the other side of the world. He didn't. So what do you mean by that? Someone else sort of defined the word missionary to mean a missionary is anyone who cannot get used to the sound of pagan footsteps on their way to a Christless eternity. When you go to bed tonight, some of you will think about those 50,000 people who go from this world into world without end, either to heaven or to hell, but for those 50,000, they will be going to hell. And they come from people groups that have not heard the gospel message. And you'll begin to wrestle with that. You'll tell yourself, but wait a minute, God wouldn't send somebody to hell who never heard the gospel message. Why, they've never rejected Christ. Nobody goes to hell for rejecting Christ. You never have. You go to hell because you are a sinner. Yes, rejecting Christ is a sin. One more sin, albeit the worst. And for many people, the last. But any one sin would separate you from God. And they are condemned. They are condemned already, Jesus said. They are separated. And their only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the great commission, the great direction that Christ gave to His church, that is to us, He said, go and make disciples out of those people. Teach them how to observe everything that I've commanded you. Which means that they also will tell others the Great Commission. You think, wow, I sure hope other people are listening to that because he's right. That needs to be heard. God can communicate through you too. We don't need to excuse ourselves from what God can do with every one of us. Exodus 4, verses 10 to 12 but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, at this point, we would love to see Moses jump on his white stallion, raise his fist in the air, and go riding off into the sunset to go bring the people out of Egypt. But basically, if we were to keep reading, we would, say, we would see that Moses is saying, Here I am, Lord, send Aaron. I mean, he still wanted somebody else to go. And that's how we are. But we're all to be involved somehow. He may not have called you to go. He may have you right where you are. And I want to say this. If you know that God has called you to be where you are, be there. Live life to the hilt. Be all there. Live to the hilt every situation that you believe to be the will of God for your life. If God has called you to be a housewife in Louisville, you cannot glorify Him more by being martyred in Somalia. You cannot glorify Him more by giving your life to serve Him in Saudi Arabia. The highest and best use of your life is to do what He wants you to do in the place where He called you to do it. Period. He made you to be what you are. He gave you the life experiences He's given you. He's given you the burdens He's given you. My responsibility is to ask, what is that in my life? And if I'm not called to be a goer, then automatically I am called to be a sender. We either send or we are sent. We give, we go, we are spent, 
we make it our business to make sure that the home fires keep burning, that the support goes, that the prayer support goes, that those who are to be the advocates here, they are that. You remember in, Ari in Syrian Antioch when the Holy Spirit came down to the very first two pe people who would ever be missionaries in the history of the church, and he said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them to do. The rest of you are slackers. Y'all are lazy. You're not no, he didn't say that. They were to send them out. They were to send out these first two. They were doing what they were supposed to do. Paul and Barnabas had to go do what they were supposed to do. The question is, what are you supposed to do? That's the question with which we must all struggle. A lot of missionaries, short-term and career, have gone to this passage in their own minds to say, Lord, I'm slow of speech. I'm not eloquent. I can't learn other languages. Lord, you should see my high school Spanish scores. It was terrible. The Lord knows what you made in, in high school Spanish. But when the Lord calls a person, He gives them the abilities that they need. They may be incipient abilities that you're growing and developing, but I have seen people who could never make a decent grade God calls them to ministry and they make straight A's. That was my experience. When, before the Lord called me, my report card always said D -d 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 -f all the way across. It was, it was terrible. My mom sang the Hallelujah Chorus when I graduated from high school. Honestly, while thinking about that, when these young people came up today, it was like nobody believed it. In fact, I didn't even go to college for a number of years because just this understanding I had of my own abilities. But when the Lord saved me, it was the exact opposite. Straight A's all the way through. I don't know how God does that, but I know that I showed what I could do prior to then, and then He showed what He could do after then. And that's true in all of our lives. Don't limit God by your belief and your natural abilities. That's exactly what Moses was doing. Don't consider your language skills or lack thereof too great a barrier for God to be able to use you. Here's the question. We come back to it. When God calls you, to give sacrificially or to go sacrificially, how will you respond? Are you willing to go to a very dangerous place that maybe you've never even considered before? To perhaps lie in some squalid hut, dying of some disease that American doctors have never even heard of? To be buried in obscurity that Christ might be glorified? that we might rescue the perishing, that we might be able to tell the truth as He's called us to go and do it. Our responsibility is the Great Commission. But we also have some great commandments, don't we? Jesus was asked, Lord, what are the great commandments? And what is the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all the law and the prophets, this, everything that this is commanding us, he said, you can hang on those two hooks. Love the Lord with all you are and love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're going to want to obey him. And we're going to want all the nations to worship him. And if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're not going to want them to go to hell. We're not going to want them to live without a right relationship with God. And we will spend and be spent. And we will give and we will go for His sake. I always tell the story 
to kind of illustrate this because sometimes about this point in a challenge that I might give, people are beginning to find excuses for, well, I mean, after all, brother, it's a big world, okay? We're giving it the old college try. I mean, there's, there's too many people in this world need to hear. We're, we've, been, we've been at it a while. We're doing okay. But, I mean, you know, you said there's a third of the world that's never heard. That means we've reached two-thirds. Give us a break. In 1896 in Atlanta, there was a guy in his lab mixing stuff together. And he mixed together water and sugar, flavoring, coloring, different kinds of stuff. He came up with this product of stuff you're supposed to drink. And he called it Coca-Cola. But he, he, it was terrible. It was almost a complete failure because it cost him $70 to make that stuff and, and only sold $50 worth the first year. And a $20 loss in 1896 was pretty serious. But he stayed with it. A few years later, you know, they figured out how to put tops on the bottle so they could take it away from the soda fountain. It began to do better. We'll cut to the chase. Here we are 119 years later. In 119 years, the Coca-Cola product goes from being invented to this day, both the logo and the product itself is known by over 95% of the people on this planet. I have been out in the jungle as far as you can drive where the road stopped. We left our cars there. We got in, dug out canoes in, in, in the river and we went two days, three days out the river to the very Peruvian border. We got out there and we were in this community of these indigenous people who welcomed us. And they said, listen, we have a laguna back in the jungle that we only can fish in, but it's got a lot of fish in it. If you guys would like to go, it's filled with piranha and all kinds of stuff. I said, cool, let's go. So we had to hike another six or eight hours to get back in there. So think about this. We've driven to the edge of the road. We get in dugout canoes to go a few more days. Then we hike hours and hours into the jungle. The canopy of the jungle was so thick that it was like twilight. Even though it was broad daylight above it, it was like twilight. You could barely see walking through there. You could hear monkeys running through the canopy, but you couldn't even see them well. It was so thick. We get to this. It opens up into this laguna, about a 60-acre lake. We got another little dugout canoe, and we fished around there all day. And we're getting ready to go, getting back in this dugout canoe. And I looked over there under a bush, and there was a Coke can. How does that happen? But it does happen. Coke's everywhere. There are places where there is no church and no one has ever heard Jesus' name. And you walk down the streets and the, the dirt roads and you will see a Coca-Cola sign hanging outside a little store. For profit, we can do it in 119 years. But for the glory of God and in obedience to His command, we haven't approached it. And Christ has said, go and make disciples of all nations with a great compassion, just as he had. You remember when it said the crowd came out to him, he lifted his eyes up and he saw him, and the Bible says he had great compassion on the crowd, Mark 6, 34. So he began to teach them many things. Some are goers, some are givers. God is calling this morning, remembering our questions and how you're going to respond. Are you aware that there might be some unexpected source he could use to speak to you? Is your presence to the Word this morning grown casual as a habit? Or are you remembering that he is here among us? Are you remembering that he is the one who saves? That he can use the least resource? That he can communicate even through us? And that they must hear the gospel to be saved. There are a lot of religions in the world, as I said, but Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Peter was preaching. He said, there's no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. And they've never heard that name. And all of you have. And Paul said, we owe them the gospel. Don't waste your life on you. It's not yours. You were bought with a price. And the one who gave his life to purchase yours, to give you salvation, has given you a great commission. You say, well, brother, when God calls, I'll try to respond well. But, you know, frankly, I haven't heard him calling. I don't hear anything. There's a guy walking down the street in Manhattan. Mary and I were just in Manhattan. I love Manhattan. It's a great place to visit. I wouldn't want to live there. You know, they speak over 800 languages every day in Manhattan. It's like Pentecost in reverse. Every corner, there's a different language, somebody at every subway car. And then there's so much noise. There's sirens and subways rushing under the street and taxis honking their horn, people shouting at each other, just flurry of activity. I mean, I can't deal with the chaos too long, but it's fun every once in a while just to go and be in the capital of the world and just experience that. There was a guy, and he's walking down the street in Manhattan at lunchtime. And the guy that's with him was an American Indian guy. And the American Indian guy looks at him and he says, I hear a cricket. He said, you do not hear a cricket. He said, no, I do. I hear a cricket. He said, you can't hear a cricket. And he said, look. And he, over there, there was a hotel with these two big planters out front of the doors. And he walked over to one of those trees, bushes, you know, there outside the door. And he was reaching under it. And he, he got out a cricket. He said, see? He said, how did you hear that? He said, what do you mean, how did I hear it? He said, look, man, there's subways and sirens and horns honking and people screaming and everything going on. He said, how did you hear that? And he said, it just depends on what you're listening for. And he took out a handful of change and he dropped it on the street and every head within 30 feet turned to hear where the money came from. There are a thousand voices screaming for your attention. Your boss, your family, your friends, Madison Avenue, television. What are you listening for? With so many people lost and undone with no hope right now, if this Bible is true, then I know God is calling people right now in this church and in all the churches where God's Word is being preached right now. He's either calling you to go forever or to go short term or to give and send. But when He calls, how will you respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the challenge it gives us. And Lord, we confess that we oftentimes begin to focus on ourselves. We begin to think about what we deserve in life. We're constantly being told, here's a need we have. We deserve to have it, feel, have it filled. We forget, Lord, that at the very core of life, this world is only a preparation ground. Lord, don't let us step into your presence at the end of this life to hear you ask, have you come alone? Let us take with us many. May we step into your presence looking around and realizing there are many others who either heard the gospel from us or from someone we helped train or from a ministry we helped to promote.
and provide financial means so that they could do what they're doing. Whatever it is, Lord, help us to find our place in your plan for your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.